Well, if you have uh, your copy of God's Word, if you open up with me to John chapter 13, where we're continuing our, our study this morning. Uh, many of you probably heard uh, about uh, Governor Gavin uh, Newsom's uh, billboard uh, that he's uh, put up uh, in uh, California, uh, and he's also put it up in six other uh, states as part of his uh, re-election campaign. Uh, for this November, uh, and uh, it's part of a push, a uh, larger push for uh, abortion uh, tourism to California. Uh, the, the billboard, uh, which has been uh, in a broad uh, spectrum of uh, states from Mississippi to Indiana uh, and California, billboard says, need an abortion? California is here to help. Uh, and uh, under, underneath the main uh, text, uh, is actually a Bible verse. Mark twelve, thirty-one. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, and there is no greater commandment than these. Now, over the course of the last couple of years, I feel like that uh, command to love your neighbor has been oft repeated and quoted by secular media, by government officials, uh, and yet. Uh, most, if not all, of those officials uh, have no regard for the God who has given that commandment. See, our world loves to, uh, at times, cut and paste uh, from the Bible. Uh, and uh, they do that to fit their own purposes. See, Governor Newsom uh, conveniently left out uh, the, the three verses prior to that verse in Mark. One of the scribes comes to Jesus and uh, they had heard him, them arguing and recognizing that he, Jesus, had answered them well. He asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The, uh, the cut and paste uh, method of, of citing uh, scripture uh, comes directly from uh, Satan's playbook. Satan himself did that when, as we were reading through the Gospel of Matthew last month, uh, when, when Jesus w- was driven out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights, uh, the devil actually cited Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. Uh, but he, he twisted them to try to uh, use them to his own purpose. Uh, and all of those who twist the scriptures, uh, as Second Peter says, uh, this, this is a common thing. All those who, who twist the scriptures do so to their own destruction. And really appealing to the Bible as authoritative only serves to bring condemnation upon themselves. The world quotes the command to, to love our neighbor, but they reject the command to love God. And... Here's a great question to ask when somebody uh, would say to you, well, we ought to love our neighbors. Just say, why? Why should we do that? Why is that important? And just let let them wrestle with it. Why should I love my neighbor? You ask that and you you might get a, a logical, thoughtful, and eloquent response along the lines of, uh, well, because... You might get a, well, Jesus said so. Uh, And a great follow-up question to that is, that's great. Why should I listen to Jesus? 
Why, why should I listen to him? And if you, if you are saying that I should listen to Jesus, do I get to pick and choose which of his commands that I want to obey? Or do I obey everything that he has said? Luke 6:46. why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then not do what I say? So if you're going to appeal to Jesus as authority, you need to follow him as an authority in all things. And if you were asked that question of why should you love your neighbor, I would hope and pray that you would connect a love for neighbor, the second greatest commandment, with the first great commandment. Uh, That we love our neighbor ultimately because uh, we love God and because he has loved us first in sending his son to live and die and rise again. And, And we cannot truly love our neighbor unless we first love God. And so if you were asked that question, I I would hope that you would connect it to the the great commandment to love God. But is that the the only connection that you could make? Uh, What other wisdom, what other truth do you have uh, in response to that question? Why should I love my neighbor? And really, we face that question constantly, right? Uh, When you see uh, your uh, literal neighbor, uh, one house down, struggling with uh, accomplishing something in their yard. Uh, and the question arises, or that temptation is, maybe I should go help him, right? Maybe I can go do that. Or uh, I know uh, my neighbor is sick, or I know uh, that a coworker just uh, suffered a, a loss of a family member. And, and there's that sense, I need to do something. But then it quickly comes, and then it goes, unacted upon. See, that's why we need to know and have a robust answer for that question. Why should I love my neighbor? Why should I even care to serve others? Why should I prioritize others over myself? We know we ought to do such things in our heart. But because we don't have a ready answer, we fail to do as we ought to do. As we come to, to John 13, uh, we're, we have arrived at Jesus' final evening with his disciples. John 13 through 16, uh, the Last Supper and what is known as the Farewell Discourse. Jesus is, is getting his disciples ready for him to depart from them. He says that is a good thing because he's going to send his spirit. But uh, the disciples are going to have a lot of questions. Uh, But as they're eating the Passover meal, as we uh, read and studied last week in verses 1 through 11... Chapter 13, they were eating the Passover meal and Jesus got up and he did what none of them were willing to do. He humbled himself and he washed all of their feet. And the disciples were just utterly speechless until Jesus got to Peter. And Peter says, no, 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 you can't do this. Jesus says, if I don't do this, if unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Uh, unless we look to Jesus in faith, unless we are washed by him and completely cleansed of our sin, we have no part in him. Uh, and so we studied last week uh, and saw that what Jesus uh, did, the action, is really a foreshadowing of what was going to take place the next day. And Jesus is going to, to cleanse his disciples in a different way. He's going to cleanse his disciples by going to the cross, by humbling himself to the point of death. But now this morning, we're going to study verses 12 to 17. And Jesus is going to to explain what he has done and what he has accomplished for them 
But he's going to approach it from a different direction. He's not going to uh, approach it by, by looking to the cross. He's going to look at the practical implications. So if you look with me at beginning in verse 12. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. And if I, then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. We pray together. Father, we, we come to you acknowledging that we need cleansing, uh, that we need to be washed We need to be born again by the power of your spirit. We need to have our minds renewed by the power of your word. We pray that you you would lead us and guide us, that you would direct our time this morning as we study your word, that your word would penetrate deep into our hearts, that we would not merely come to a head knowledge of what this passage is calling us to, but Lord, a willingness to obey all that it commands of us. May you use this, uh, this time, this study, of your word to mold us and shape us into the image and likeness of your son. May we follow after him, for he is our great example. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. So verse 12 is going to, to provide us with, with the point of this passage. Jesus is going to, to ask a question in verse 12, and then he's going to answer that question in verses 13 through 17. Verse 12, he says, do you know what I have done to you or what I have done for you? And then he's going to to unfold the significance of his humble act of service uh, for the Christian life. But what does this foot washing event 2000 years ago uh, require of us today? Well, as Jesus explains to his disciples, we're going to see four implications of what he did. And each of these implications is going to show us uh, why we should love and serve our neighbor as Christians. And one thing to keep in mind as Jesus is teaching here, uh, he is not uh, telling the disciples that they must work to earn their salvation. He's going to be giving them a command and he's going to say, go and do likewise. Uh, But the command to go and serve and love others uh, is premised upon their relationship already with him uh, because they are in relationship with him because they have looked to him in faith and have a love and affection for him then they are able to love and serve others Uh, but uh, these commands if we were to to separate them out from a love for christ uh, would merely just be uh, an attempt to uh, to try and earn our own forgiveness and our own salvation which is utterly impossible Jesus is uh, commanding now that they love their neighbor, but ultimately Jesus is the reason uh, and the only means by which we can love and serve others. So I've tried to, to write these, uh, these implications in a way that connects them all to Christ. And what we see, that the first implication is seen in verses 13 and 14. And Jesus informs us of our obligation to serve. 
He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. And if I, then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So in in these two verses, Jesus argues from greater to lesser. Uh, He says that that they themselves call him uh, teacher uh, and Lord. And the idea that teacher is the idea of rabbi. They they call him uh, rabbi. What do rabbis do? They instruct. So if they call him rabbi and look to him as the teacher uh, and receive instruction from him, uh, he's in a greater uh, position uh, than they are. Uh, And if they look to him and uh, John's gospel at times, the word Lord can just mean sir. It can just be a time uh, and and a term of uh, respect. Uh, But here I think it has a a greater significance uh, referring to uh, the divinity of Christ. If they have called him teacher and Lord, and he uh, has washed their feet. And if you notice in verse 14, uh, Jesus uh, inverses what they call him. He says, you've called me rabbi and Lord. And he says, you do so rightly. Uh, Then he he inverts. He says, well, uh, I am Lord and I am teacher. And as he, as those things, has washed their feet, he says, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And the English translation there uh, doesn't give full justice to the Greek. The idea of the the ought to uh, is uh, really that they are under a moral obligation to. There is an indebtedness there uh, where they uh, must uh, do as Christ has done. They are under a moral obligation uh, out of indebtedness to Christ uh, to love and serve one another. And we have an obligation to serve as Christians because we are morally indebted to Jesus for what he has done because he has cleansed us and washed us and reconciled us with God the Father. Then we are called now uh, to die to self uh, and glorify him by loving and serving others. Back in 1990, uh, Christianity Today told the story of Dr. Robertson McQuilkin who was for many years the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary in Columbia, South Carolina. In 1980, Dr. McQuilkin began to see signs of memory loss in his wife, Muriel. And for the next decade, he began to see his wife decline and her previous occupation of as a conference speaker and doing radio shows and appearing on television began to erode and disappear. By the mid-1980s, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and her deterioration continued to advance rapidly. Uh, and this situation uh, presented Dr. McQuilkin with a, a decision, really, really with a, uh, a crisis. He's the president of a thriving Bible college and graduate school, and yet his wife needs him to care for him. Uh, and so how can he do both? How can he care for his wife and fulfill his responsibilities uh, as a, a college and seminary president? And many Christian friends encouraged him uh, to entrust his wife Muriel to professional care, i.e. A, a nursing home. But he could not bear the thought of that. And as her condition worsened, he made a decision. And in his own words, he says that this was a matter of integrity. And he decided that he would resign from his position at Columbia College and Seminary. Now, what was it that, that made this a matter of integrity for Dr. McQuilkin? 
This wasn't a, a professional or a career decision. This was a theological decision. He was going to love his wife and care for her and cherish her because of his love for God and God's love for him. His decision was rooted and grounded uh, in the love of God that he had experienced through his own wife's unselfish love for him over the course of their 42 years of marriage. This is how he describes his decision. He says, it is more than keeping promises and being fair. And as I watch her brave descent into oblivion, Muriel is the joy of my life. Daily I discern new manifestations of the kind of person she is, the wife I always loved. I always see fresh manifestations of God's love, the God I long to love more fully. Here's a man who understood his obligation to love and serve others out of a love for Christ. Jesus' words here are commanding Christians to do likewise. We we are commanded, we have an obligation to humble, self-sacrificing service. That is the the exhortation here. And some throughout her church history have taken uh, these words here in these verses uh, as a direct command to literally wash one another's feet. Uh, and uh, that, that view, uh, many ha- have taken it, uh, and that raises a good question. Is this a, uh, a third ordinance that Jesus has commanded of the church in addition to baptism and communion? I think uh, in, in seeking to, uh, to answer that, there's a couple of things I would, I would point out. That, that other than, than this occasion and uh, one uh, citation in 1 Timothy 5 verse 10, that foot washing is not uh, mentioned anywhere else uh, in the New Testament. And in that context of in 1 Timothy 5, it's used of describing a widow uh, who has humbly served the church. And other than that, foot washing is not mentioned in the book of Acts or in the New Testament letters. But baptism and communion are continually uh, brought up. Uh, and uh, the, the command to humbly serve one another is seen throughout the New Testament. I think that is what, what Jesus is, is hitting at here. It's much bigger than just wash one another's feet. It's self-sacrifice. It's being willing to, uh, to serve others even at a high cost to ourselves. And that we are under obligation to do so. So the, the question is, have we recognized that obligation? You may have recognized that you have an obligation to serve certain others, right? Family, spouse, kids. And yet as Christians, we are obligated to serve one another because we have an indebtedness to Jesus. He has a claim upon your life if you are a believer. And every single believer needs to confess with the Apostle Paul what he confessed in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live But Christ lives in me, and the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That needs to be our profession of faith. We have an obligation, and Jesus informs the disciples and us of this obligation to serve others. Secondly, in verse 15, Jesus provides us with an example. If you look with me at that verse, he says, For I gave you... An example that you also should do as I did to you. 
And, and the word, for example, here carries the idea of a, uh, a model or a pattern of moral instruction that is to be followed. It's also used to describe a negative pattern uh, that is not to be followed. Uh, Hebrews 4.11 says, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter the rest so that no one will fall through the following same example of disobedience. Speaking of Old Testament Israel, and there's our word, the example of disobedience. But in a positive sense, it's used in James chapter 5, verse 10. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And so Jesus is pointing to what he has just done. And he saying that he has provided the disciples a, a picture, a pattern that they are to do. He says, I've done this so that you can go and do likewise. And by showing us this example of humility, he is paradoxically elevating humility as a virtue in the Christian life. Now, now every single culture esteems certain virtues over others. Now, the, the Greeks and Romans, even at this very time, uh, highly esteemed courage uh, in battle, and they highly esteemed military prowess. And they had models and examples of courage in battle, and they told stories of such courage over and over again. One famous example of this is the, the story of Horatius at the bridge. Horatius was uh, the keeper of the gate of Rome, and he stood in front of the bridge and held off the Etruscans until the Romans could put the bridge out of commission and then being wounded, uh, he dove into uh, the, uh, the river uh, and uh, swam back uh, to the city. And Thomas Babington uh, Macaulay, uh, the 19th century poet, wrote a famous poem recounting the story of Horatius at the bridge. Famous line, he says, Then out spoke brave Horatius, the captain of the gate, To every man upon his earth, this earth, death cometh soon or late, and how can man die better? Than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers and the temples of his gods. See, the, the Greeks and Romans, they valued courage and bravery. Uh, and they exalted that through their, their stories. But think through what Jesus is picturing for us here. What story does Jesus want to be repeated and retold? What is he upholding in the Christian life? Now, there's, there is a need and a place desperately for courage and bravery in battle. But those are not uh, the most commendable virtues in the Christian life. What is Jesus here holding up as the greatest virtue in the Christian life? Humility. Humble service. Self-sacrifice out of love. This is what Christ is exalting. This is the pattern that we are to follow in. Jesus says this in, in numerous places throughout the Gospels. We are to follow him. We are to walk according to the pattern that he has set out. Denying ourselves and taking up our cross, we are to follow after him. We are to walk as he walked. We are to talk as he talked. We are to prioritize what he prioritized. We are to do as he did. We are to humble ourselves as he humbled himself. And the most devout Christians should be the greatest servants who humbly love others. 
There should be no act of service that is beneath us as Christians. Now, there is nothing that we ought to say, no, that, I can't do that. We must be willing to do the lowly tasks, everything in the, in the background of the Christian life. And we must be willing to do all of our service as seen by God rather than by men. And as we read Matthew's gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, Jesus rebukes those who do their acts of service to be seen by men. He says, if you do that, that is the extent of your reward. You will get a pat on the back. You will get man's praise, but that is all that you will get. But when we serve, when we give alms to the poor, when we pray, when we fast, we don't go and trumpet it and announce it in the streets. But we go and do those things in secret. And he says, your father who sees in secret will reward you. That is the exhortation. Humble service. Not to be seen and glorified and appreciated by men. But humble service to others for the glory of God. To be seen by him. I would say, do we prioritize that? Do we take this command to do as Jesus did, to do those lowly tasks? Do we take that command seriously? Are you willing and able and available to help others? Do you even have that freedom in your schedule? Or is everything so full and blocked out that there's no time to help family members, to help neighbors, to help others in the church? Are you willing to to make a meal? Are you willing to, to help someone move or help clean or mow the lawn when others are sick? Are you willing to, to go and uh, watch their, their kids so they can run errands? Are you willing to, to help them in countless small ways? Oftentimes, again, we're, we're so busy, we don't even contemplate how we can serve others. But we must take the time not only to contemplate how we can serve others, but also take the time to actually go and do it. Jesus informs us of our obligation to serve. He provides us with an example of service. And then third, Jesus reminds us of our position as slaves. Look at verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. So Jesus begins this verse uh, with an introductory formula, one he uses often. Truly, truly, I say to you. That formula always announces something important. It gets attention. This, this is vital. You need to pay attention to this. And then following that introduction, he points to two human relationships. He points to the relationship between a slave and a master, and he points to the relationship between a messenger and the one who sends that messenger. And both of those relationships have a hierarchy to them. And Jesus points this out, right? The slave is not greater than his master, and the, and the messenger is not greater than the one who sends him. But both of these relationships also point to the men that he is speaking to. Both of those uh, relationships are directly uh, appropriate for the disciples. The disciples have called Jesus Lord and Master. And the implication is that they are in a servant or a slave relationship with him. 
that he is the one, uh, because of what he has accomplished on their behalf, that he is the one that they now answer to and take orders from. And in the, the second relationship of the messenger and the one who sends, the one who is sent, the word there in the Greek is apostolos, literally apostle. That's what apostle means. It means one who is sent. And with these examples of hierarchy, Jesus is reminding the disciples of their actual position in relation to Jesus. And since Jesus, as their master and the one who sends them, if Jesus was the one who humbly served them and washed their feet, then they, as slaves and apostles, they should not think that they are somehow exempt from serving others. If their Lord and Master has done it, they also must do it. And put simply, Jesus is reminding these disciples to rightly understand themselves in relationship to him. Indeed, that is the very heart of what it means to be humble. Humility is viewing ourselves rightly in relation to God. Do we elevate ourselves over God or do we uh, submit ourselves under his authority? And if we do not rightly see our position in standing before God, then we will be proud rather than humble. Humility requires that we see ourselves as being sent by and slaves of Christ. And this lesson did sink deep into the minds of the apostles. If you just flip through the pages of the New Testament, listen to how each of the apostles that wrote in the New Testament, listen to how they introduced themselves. Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Many translations will have that as uh, a bondservant, uh, but there's, a, there's a, a ton of evidence that would indicate uh, that that word is best understood as slave. And that's the same word that we see here in John. So Romans 1, 1, Paul identifies himself as a slave of Christ Jesus. James 1, 1. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Simeon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude 1. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. And Revelation 1.1. 1, 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his slaves the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his slave, John. Each of the apostles understood their relationship with Christ. They understood that they were to serve and obey him, to follow after him, to do all that he has commanded. Their mission in life was no longer to promote or advance themselves. Peter's goal in life went from being the greatest fisherman he could be to a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. And so our mission in life is not promotion or advancement of self. It is as Micah 6, 8 says, that he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And indeed, if we walk humbly with God, we will love justice and kindness. What does it look like to love kindness, though? I love others to be kind to me. We all love that, right? No, truly to love kindness means I love doing kindness for others. I love to serve others 
without the promise of any benefit to myself. That's the kind of service that we are called to. Jesus has explained this obligation to serve. He has uh, shown us an example of service, and he has uh, reminded the disciples and us of our position of service as slaves. Last in verse 17, Jesus names service as a condition for blessing. He says, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. This is one of two Beatitudes in, in John's gospel. And it's a conditional statement. There's two ifs here. Number one, if you have known these things. And the way that that's written in the Greek, that is a, a certain reality. Jesus knows that they have known these things. Why? Because he taught them. He's in the process of continuing to teach them. So he knows that they know these things. What is uncertain is the second if statement. If you have known these things, blessed are you, you will be blessed if you are doing them. An ongoing thing. And this is what is uncertain. See, blessing is promised, but it is conditioned upon knowledge and obedience. That we must know, and if we act upon what we know, then we will be blessed. And in the context here, the, the what we know refers to uh, the whole topic of conversation. We know that we ought to serve. Uh, and if we know that, we will be blessed if we actually serve. If we actually go and do what Jesus is commanding here. There is a promise of blessing for obedience given here. And sometimes... Uh, if we are sensitive to uh, the abuse of passages like this from the, the prosperity gospel, kind of name it and claim it, and there's just all these promises of blessing. Sometimes we, we swing from one error uh, over to another error, uh, and uh, we don't know what to do with some of these verses. But here there is a promise of blessing, and we are told to hold to this promise. It's not a, not a promise of wealth and prosperity, but a blessing. And then you're just like, well, what does that blessing look like? Can I get a deeper description of that, Jesus? If I'm, if I'm going to pursue this, what does blessing look like? We're not given all the details, but we hold that there will be blessing. But another question that we might ask is, how do we, how do we hold in tension this reality? A little bit later in this farewell discourse, in John 15 and 16, Jesus is going to say that if you're following and obeying him... The world's going to come after you. The world is going to, to persecute and hate you if you are following Jesus. Why? Because the world hated Jesus first. So how do we balance that? There's a promise of blessing and there's a promise of persecution. How do we make sense of this? I love, I love this. Back in the early 1800s, there was a, a Brahmin of India named Don Daba came to faith in Christ and who was baptized. Now, a Brahmin uh, in the, the Hindu uh, society, Hindu religion, uh, Hindu uh, Indian society is based upon a caste system uh, through reincarnation. The better you are in one life, you get a higher ranking on the next life. And uh, uh, so this uh, man, Dandaba, uh, was uh, a Brahmin, which means that he was of the priestly class. He was one of the religious gurus who uh, was called to serve and to teach others. Well, Dandaba, as a result of his faith and his baptism, 
He lost his houses. He lost his fields. He lost his wife and his children. And then somebody asked him how he bore the sorrows. And he said, I am often asked that, but I am never asked how I bear with my joys. For I have joys within with which a stranger does not know. The Lord Jesus sought me and found me, a poor strayed sheep in the jungles, and he brought me to his fold, and he will never leave me. See, that's how we hold those two in tension. Yes, there will be persecution. Following Jesus is a serious decision. The world doesn't like that. But there are also immeasurable and countless blessings. How do you bear up under the blessings of following Jesus? That is a greater question. We must, in this passage, we must believe that the blessings of following and obeying Jesus are greater than the persecution that we will face. That we have to believe that in our hearts. We must believe that if uh, we love and serve others, that we will be blessed. Inconvenienced? Yes. Right? You may not get to some of the things that you want to do. But there will be blessing that comes as a result. And we must act upon what we know. Right? We have known these things, now we must act upon them. And if we do, we will be blessed. We have to trust that. And conversely, we must also believe that if, uh, if we refuse to act upon what we have known, if we, if we refuse to do what we ought to do, what are we missing out on? The blessing of God promised here. We choose self over service to others. Uh, we're going to miss the blessing of God in our lives. We may get to check off some of the boxes of our own desires and our own accomplishments, but we're missing out on things that are far, far greater. Jesus, in this passage, explains all of the implications of his foot washing to the disciples, and he explains them to us. All of these implications are reasons that you need to have in your heart, in your mind. Why should you serve others? Because you are under obligation to serve. Because of what Christ has done for you. Why should you serve others? Because Christ is your example and what it looks like to serve. Because we ourselves are slaves of Christ. And we have been redeemed, we have been purchased by him, and now we serve him with our lives. And we serve others and love others, not expecting anything in return from them, but trusting that God will bless us for our service. Especially, maybe in this life, but especially in the life to come. I'll close with this. I love this from J.C. Ryle. I know I quote from him often. But he says uh, regarding this passage, the lesson is one which deserves continual remembrance of all professing Christians. Nothing is more common than to hear people saying of doctrine or duty. We know it. We know it. While they sit still in unbelief or disobedience, they actually seem to flatter themselves that there is something creditable or redeeming in knowledge 
even when it bears no fruit in heart, character, or life. And yet the truth is precisely the other way. To know what we ought to be, believe, and do, and yet to be unaffected by our knowledge, only adds to our guilt in the sight of God. To know that Christians should be humble and loving while we continue proud and selfish will only sink us deeper in the pit unless we awake and repent. Practice, in short, is the very life of religion. And he cites James 4.17. To him who knows what he ought to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. What an exhortation here. Now we need to act upon what we have come to know. And we need to trust that the Lord will bless and care and provide for us as we go and serve him. Amen.